On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at In October 1993, police in Bournemouth, England, were investigating the mysterious disappearance of a man who fell off a yacht. And that was just the beginning, because this case was about to take an even more bizarre turn. A man named Russell Cosley had been on a 40-foot yacht off the coast of Guernsey with the woman who was his common-law wife, Patricia Cosley. The deal was that even though they technically weren't married, they had the same last name, And rather than her taking his name, he took her last name. His lawyer, a man named Anthony Hackett-Jones, was also on that boat, along with a fourth woman. They sailed out from an area called St. Peter Port, and when they were on their way back, apparently Russell fell off the boat in the middle of the night. Anthony made an emergency call. The Coast Guard was called in, and officials did a massive air search. But they found no sign of Russell and no body. So the next step was for police to notify Russell's next of kin. And they knocked on the door of Russell's daughter, Samantha Sam Gillingham. Sam told the TV show When Missing Turns to Murder that she was devastated when police broke the news to her that her father had fallen off a boat and gone missing at sea. Not long after that, Antony filed a life insurance claim on Russell And police started to wonder if they could be dealing with a case of fraud and also wondering if Russell could have faked his own death. This fraud inquiry would start a chain reaction of events that would lead back to murder. Because the real story here started much earlier, way back in 1985. Police investigating Russell Cosley for the fraud soon discovered that before he was with his girlfriend, Patricia, Russell Cosley had had a wife. Her legal name was Veronica Pacman. She went by Carol. In 1985, nine years earlier, was the year when Carol disappeared without a trace. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar.
police in Guernsey, England, were following up on reports that a yacht passenger named Russell Cosley had fallen overboard. And when they were checking up on his last known addresses, they figured out that his wife, Carol, had gone missing under what looked like very mysterious circumstances nine years before that. The police officers who were doing the background investigation into the case did some checking. They found out the investigative file on Carol had been destroyed because after she was reported missing, she showed up in person at a police station in Bournemouth. And once the police saw that Carol was alive and well, they closed the case. His daughter, Sam, was dealing with the trauma of the fact that she had lost both parents. She'd had no known contact with her mom, Carol, since Carol disappeared all those years ago. And now her dad was lost at sea. Police started asking the lawyer, Anthony, and Russell's girlfriend, Patricia, even more questions, especially once they figured out that Russell had had this life insurance policy on him and that Anthony had made a claim on Russell for one million pounds. And there were other things that didn't seem to add up, like the fact that on the night that Russell went missing, someone else booked a ticket on a ferry back to the UK under the name Mr. R. Russell. So the insurance company was getting suspicious, and so was law enforcement. Although police probably did have to wonder if someone would have been dumb enough to fake his own death and then book a ticket back to the UK on that same night under his real name. Police soon had their theory. They believed that this was insurance fraud and that Russell had faked his own death. They started surveillance on Patricia. And after four months, police got a break in the case. They found Patricia at a pub calmly having lunch with Russell, who had apparently come back from the dead. Russell and Patricia were both arrested, and Sam was in a state of shock. She couldn't believe that her father could have been this cruel. Did he really not care about the fact that Sam would think he was dead? Or for that matter, about the fact that he may never see Sam again? Soon, Russell and Patricia were charged with conspiracy to defraud the insurance company. Patricia pleaded guilty and got a suspended sentence. Anthony pleaded not guilty and got three years. Russell was sentenced to two years in prison. And it's interesting because I did some checking and it turns out that in the UK, if you're a member of a certain profession and you break certain laws, you can actually get a longer sentence. For example, because Anthony was a lawyer, he ended up with three years and Russell just got two, which I thought was pretty interesting. But after that was over, police still didn't know what had happened to Carol. They talked to her friends and family about her disappearance and they started to try to piece together the clues. Russell and Carol had met in 1965. According to her family, they met when Carol was very young in a town called Reading. Carol had left school when she was just 15. She was described as very headstrong, and soon after she met Russell, she apparently fell madly in love with him, even though her family straight up didn't like Russell, partly because they found out he had a criminal background partly because many of them believed he was just controlling and kind of a jerk. The bottom line was that they did not approve. Carol married him when she was just 20 years old. And over the years, Russell and Carol both built careers. Carol worked in the aviation industry, and she built an excellent reputation among her colleagues. But at home, it was another story. Friends say that Carol was basically living in a prison. Her family told police after her disappearance that they had never gotten along with Russell, and he may have used that as an excuse, but whatever the circumstances, over the years, as so many abusers do, 
he kept Carol cut off from family and friends. Carol didn't talk to her family for years. Then, according to the TV show, When Missing Turns to Murder, out of the blue, Carol called her mom one day. She was very upset. Apparently, she and Russell had gotten an Alsatian puppy. Somehow, the puppy had some kind of an accident in the house. And according to this friend of Carol's mom, who talked to the TV show, Carol told her mom that Russell flew into a rage and kicked the puppy to death. He also punched Carol. Her mom said that she begged Carol to leave. But even after seeing an animal kicked to death, which has to be one of the most horrific things I've ever heard, as I talk about this, I'm having a physical reaction to what he did to that puppy. Carol just couldn't get away. Russell seemed to have a hold on her. Eventually, Carol and Russell had their daughter, Sam. And after that, even though Carol loved her family, it seemed like she was even more trapped in a way. Sam told the TV show, When Missing Turns to Murder, that when she was a kid, the family moved around a lot. They lived in Canada and Germany, but eventually they settled back in Bournemouth. In 1983, Russell had set up a business at home. And that's when he met 26-year-old Patricia. She came to work with him. And Sam said that at the time, the family had some serious money problems. But Russell had a solution to those problems. Patricia sold her apartment, and she actually moved in with Carol and Russell. Now, because she was so young at the time, Carol said that she didn't realize what the ramifications of this were at first. Sam said that her dad kind of sold this to the family as a way to save their house. He said that this way they'd be able to pay the mortgage on the family home. And Sam actually liked Patricia at first. She described her as confident. And she said that the bottom line was her father was determined to have Patricia live there, and her father always got his way. She told the BBC News that for the first few months, things seemed weirdly kind of normal. Kids can adapt to a lot of different situations. And again, she said that Patricia was nice to her. She said, quote, Patricia was almost like a nanny for me, end quote. I'm thinking about this situation Sam is actually sharing a bedroom with her father's mistress. And over time, she started to realize what was really going on. I cannot even imagine what the atmosphere in that house must have been like at that point. And to make things worse, Sam said that her father and Patricia were basically acting like teenagers. She told the BBC that Patricia, who, remember, is sleeping in her bedroom, would sneak out late at night and go into her dad's room, which... Honestly, just hearing that is so creepy. She said that Russell emotionally abused both her and her mother, Carol. And Sam said that at some point, the abuse turned physical. Sam said that she grew up being sent to her room to what her dad would call isolate her. She said she was beaten with a wooden spoon. But she said after Patricia moved in, things got a lot worse. And Sam said the abuse of Carol got worse too. Sam said that Russell would do anything to maintain absolute control over her and her mom. She said he forced her and her mom to bow down to him, which seemed like kind of a perversion of the Islamic prayer ritual. But Sam was afraid to say anything because she had told her mom before that her dad had had affairs, and after her dad found out what Sam had said, he beat her with one of his shoes. Because of all the drama and tension and fear in the house, Sam said she was super unhappy at home. She said she fought constantly with both her mom and her dad. But things were starting to change because 
For the first time, even though Carol had bent to Russell's will so many times over the years, Carol was fighting back. She went to the lawyer and told that lawyer that she wanted a divorce. Shortly after that, Carol disappeared without a trace. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Sam knew that her mom was unhappy. And this is the heartbreaking part. After Carol went missing, Sam told BBC News that she just thought her mom had left. In a way, it wasn't a total surprise. She said she was worried at first, but once she heard that her mom came into the police station and that the officers had seen her there in person, she believed that her mom was okay. And over time, she just kind of accepted that Carol was gone. Later, of course, she said she felt huge guilt for just accepting that. A few months after Carol disappeared, Sam said her dad kicked her out, too. Patricia had moved in, and her dad was super infatuated with his new love, and there seemed to be no room for anything else. Sam had a tough time as a teen. She went into youth homes for a while and spent some time in the system. But eventually, she came back home to live with Russell and Patricia. Russell was arrested when Sam was a teen and charged with assaulting her. But according to the book investigating the almost perfect murders, the charges were later dropped. So we fast forward to June 1985. Police were interviewing Sam about the circumstances of her mom's disappearance. Sam told police that she last saw her mom in June, and then she couldn't be sure if it was the 11th or the 15th. She remembered that she went to London with her dad and Patricia, and they all had lunch there. Sam told police that she vividly remembered coming home. Her mom was gone, and she saw a note left on the table in what she believed was her mom's handwriting, saying that Carol just couldn't stand living there anymore, and she was leaving. Sam said that she saw one of her mother's favorite red dresses had been torn to shreds. So, of course, Sam assumed that her mom and Russell had gotten into a huge fight and Carol had left. But at the same time, Sam said she remembered other things that seemed a little bit off, like the fact that her mother's jewelry, including a very expensive Rolex watch, had been left behind. In some nagging part of her mind, especially as she got older, she was probably thinking about that. If you were going to go away forever, it seemed like the type of thing that you would bring along. In August of 1985, Sam and Russell went to the Bournemouth police station and officially reported Carol missing. After that, They never saw her again, 
And Sam said her teen years were hard. She fought with her dad, and at some point, she slept on the streets. Over the years, she would try to track her mom down, but she never saw her. She wondered, had she done anything to push her mom over the edge? Why did her mom abandon her? So now, all these years later, in 1993, the police who were investigating Russell's fall from the yacht wanted to find Carol. Police who had investigated Russell's alleged fall from the yacht and the fake death needed to find Carol. They talked to Russell again. He told them that he knew Carol was alive because over the years he'd talked to her. He said he'd gotten a letter from her in 1991. But then when they asked him for a copy of the letter, he said he'd already destroyed it. Then they talked to Russell's friends. And they found out that he had told all of his friends basically a different story about where Carol was. And also, no one, apart from Russell, claimed to have a verified sighting of Carol since 1985. The investigation really kicked off when the Guernsey police, who were working on the fraud case, called the Dorset police. And when they did, they did manage to track down the last known sighting of Carol, other than by Russell. On June 14, 1985, Carol met with her lawyer and asked the lawyer about divorcing Russell. Now, police figured out that this was the day before Russell and Patricia took Samantha out to that lunch and the day that she saw the torn dress and the note. In 1994, while Russell and Patricia were out on bail waiting to face the charges of insurance fraud, police came to their home again to talk to them about Carol. And once again, according to police, Russell was very arrogant. He insisted that the last time he saw Carol was on June 15, 1985. He said he had no idea where she was. It's pretty incredible because even though Russell was the one who had the mistress living inside the house with his entire family... He seemed to try to turn it around on Carol. He said she was seeing someone else. In fact, he said he thought she had been hooking up with a guy who drove a Porsche. He told police and his daughter that Carol and this mystery boyfriend may have left for a new life in Switzerland. So interestingly, in the book, Investigating the Almost Perfect Murders, the writer, Tony Knott, who was a detective chief inspector for the Dorset Police, who led the investigation into Carol's disappearance talks about investigative techniques that they used. And I'm always really interested to see how different investigators handle interviews on cold cases, especially in different countries. In the interview they did with Russell, they seemed to work hard to try and keep everything very casual. They let Russell record the conversation. And they didn't take notes, but later Tony said that he and his partner pulled over. And after they got a little way down the road, they immediately started writing everything down that had just happened. The bottom line was both of them believed in their bones at that point that Russell had killed Carol. But they needed evidence. They needed to follow the paper trail. They checked the land registry documents, which showed that there had been some activity after 1985. The house had been transferred from Russell and Carol, the original owners, to Russell alone in 1990. It was confirmed that when that happened in 1990, Carol went to a lawyer in Bournemouth and signed the documents over to Russell. Russell then later turned around and transferred the home to his and Patricia's names. Police re-interviewed the couple's family and friends. They were basically questioning everything they thought they knew about this case at this point. And it seemed like Russell had a different story for everyone he talked to about what had really happened to Carol. People would ask him where she was. He would tell one person she was in Germany, another she was in Switzerland. 
He kept coming back to this story about her swanning off with a mystery boyfriend who had a Porsche. Now, I cannot imagine how painful this must have been for Sam to hear. Like a lot of Red Collar listeners, my parents are divorced. They got divorced when I was 13 years old, and I know that it's hard enough to be separated at that time in your life from a parent, even if they're just divorced and there's still a constant presence in your life and everything else is fairly normal. I cannot imagine this poor young woman growing up thinking that the mom who loved her more than anything in the world abandoned her to follow some random guy with a sports car around the world. That's actually one of the cruelest lies I've ever heard. A lot of Carol's former friends also said over the years they had noticed bruises and had suspected there was violence in her marriage to Russell. And a lot of press reports, especially tabloid reports at the time, said Russell had what they called, quote, dubious sexual tendencies, end quote. Some friends of the couple claimed that Russell had kind of coerced Carol into having parties where there was swinging going on. And this was just another area where Russell had absolute control over what went on in that house. Tony Knott, the investigator, wrote that once he started out on this case, after Russell faked his own death in the 90s, he was told at various points by different police officers that there was no point in chasing this case. They encouraged him to give up. They said this is just a missing persons case. But he couldn't let it go. He wrote in his book that he and some of the guys he worked with, especially after they talked to Sam and Russell, and they realized no one had seen or heard from Carol in years. They just knew that Carol was dead, and they strongly suspected that Russell did it. So even though it looked like they had no evidence to go on, they refused to give up. But they wondered, if Carol was dead, then who was the woman who walked into the police station and the lawyer's office? Police had a theory about that. They thought that it was Patricia, especially once they found out that Patricia had been caught impersonating Carol before. Patricia had actually been using Carol's ID in Canada and working on Carol's work permit. Eventually, she was deported from Canada after that impersonation. In March 1995, right around the time that Russell was convicted of conspiracy to defraud and given the two-year sentence, Sam was starting to figure out that her mom may not be alive and well after all. She was desperate for answers about what happened to Carol, so she started doing a ton of media outreach. She was appealing, begging anyone who knew anything about what happened to her mother to please come forward. Then the story took another weird turn because a guy named Michael, who said he was a former cellmate of Russell's, read a story about Sam and about Russell's conviction. He called a reporter for the Sunday Express newspaper and told him this crazy story. He said that Russell had told him he had killed Carol. Then he said he got two guys to take the body to a cemetery and buried her there. But there were some issues with this story because police were dealing with a guy who had A, called a tabloid newspaper, and B, had a criminal history. So naturally, they were very suspicious of this story. But Detective Knott said he believed that the story was credible. Michael didn't want money, and all he'd asked the journalist to do was to help him get in touch with a detective handling the case. In August of 1995, police questioned Russell about the disappearance again. And again, he and Patricia denied having anything to do with Carol being gone. Russell wrote in a statement that, yes, he had shared a cell with Michael, but insisted that he didn't tell him anything about Carol. But even when he was behind bars, it seemed like Russell just couldn't stop talking because another former cellmate of Russell's came forward. This person said Russell had admitted to killing Carol. First, he gave her a shot of gas 
so that she would be unconscious. Then, Russell said, he had suffocated her by putting a plastic bag over her head. After that, he said he dissolved her body in acid in the bathtub. And this jailhouse informant added more detail. This person said Patricia knew about everything. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten, moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at NJM.com. In 1996, Russell was rearrested and charged with Carol's murder. Police had a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case, but they still didn't have a body. And another problem, they didn't know exactly how Carol had died. Then they got another call from another cellmate. This person said that Russell had given him even more detail. This person said Russell told him that he planned to shoot Carol but possibly because guns are a lot harder to get a hold of in the UK than they are in the US. Long story short, Russell's gun connection kind of fell through. So Russell said that he got into a violent argument with Carol. At some point, she threw a glass at him. He said he attacked her and killed her with a hatchet. Russell said that a friend he called Archie had helped dispose of the body. Now police had three witnesses, but they had a big problem because these are three super different versions of events. And then something happened that I have to say I've never seen in a case I've covered. Prosecutors believe that Russell told him a completely different story and was counting on the fact that this person would go to the police. He believed, they say, this would make his defense case stronger. And if that's true, that is the work of a narcissistic criminal mastermind. I definitely think it's possible because Russell proved himself over the years to be someone who focused on the long game, even in moments when he was backed into a corner. And this case also made me think about how we define white-collar and red-collar criminals. Frank Perry, the expert who proposed the addition of red-collar crime to the FBI crime manual, has kind of explained the difference between criminals who kill for money and red-collar criminals. And Often the circumstances can seem similar. So you can have people who kill, for example, for insurance money. So a red-collar criminal and just a black widow or another type of killer would both kill for the money and they would gain from the death. But the difference is the motivation because people who have a red-collar motive have this desperation. And prosecutors said that Russell had this. They said that Russell was driven to kill due to this desperation. After putting up with this behavior and abuse for years, Carol had had enough and she was filing for divorce. Russell knew that he would lose half of everything. He was running out of time. 
The prosecution strategy was also just to come straight out and say, we know we have zero forensic evidence. Instead, they built a profile of Russell. They talked to all Russell's friends who all said they had different stories about what happened to Carol. They laid out the financial problems. They talked about the money trail. And most of all, they used Russell's own behavior against him. The result was that in 1996, Russell was convicted of Carol's murder. By the way, he was the first person in the history of the UK to be convicted without a body. And this could have been the end of the story, but then in 1989, police started reinvestigating cases from the 80s, specifically cases where they believed that the cases could have been tainted by problematic witnesses, and Russell's was one of them. There was a problem with the witnesses against him, specifically with one of them who apparently had not told the truth when they were asked if they'd ever cooperated with police. So in March 2004, Russell got a second trial. And this time, none of the cellmate witnesses testified. But once again, Russell was found guilty of Carol's murder. The judge, Justice Hallett, said, quote, What you did to your wife is beyond the understanding of most normal people. You bullied her and dominated her for years. You moved your mistress into the family home then involved your very vulnerable daughter in your sordid affair. The damage you have done to your daughter is incalculable. It's a miracle she has turned out as well-adjusted as she has. Not only did you kill your wife and dispose of the body, you've left your daughter in a permanent state of ignorance as to her fate. You don't care about her feelings. The only feelings you care about are yours and Patricia Causley's. When your daughter became too much trouble for you, she had to leave home. It's fortunate for her it wasn't worth your financial gain to kill her. In my mind, you were a self-centered and calculating killer. You will do whatever you have to do to make your life easier. Your mistress appears to be of the same kind, and I'm not surprised she hasn't dared to show her face at this court. In my judgment, you are a wicked pair. This is cold-blooded killing for financial gain, end quote. After the second trial, Russell was sentenced to life with a minimum of 16 years. I've said before in this podcast that life in prison in the UK is not the same as life in the United States. And sadly, it seems that this is one of those cases. Because then, years later, Carol's family got more shocking news. Russell Causley may be released. In 2014, he told the parole board that he had strangled Carol. He said he buried her body in the back garden of their house, the one in Ipswich Road. He said that the fire burned for a long time, three days, and that after it died down, he ditched the ashes on a golf course nearby. So the Dorset police reopened the investigation into Carol's death for the third time. Detective Knott said that Russell was playing mind games with the police this whole time, like laughing and giving them an ironic wink when he was talking about the murder. He also kept changing his story. After Patricia finally ended their relationship, Russell turned on Patricia. He confessed, but he put a lot of the blame on her. He said that he met Patricia, who he called Trish, in 1983. He went on and on about how in the beginning she was plain and he didn't even find her attractive. He said they started their affair on December 11th of that year. He said that he'd been having another affair and that his relationship with Carol was already rocky before he met Patricia. So he said she wasn't the cause of his marriage breaking down. He said that he and Carol, quote, hated each other with a vengeance, end quote. He said they fought constantly and admitted that sometimes the fights turned physical. 
He did claim to have one regret. He claimed that he introduced Sam to Patricia, and he said he asked Sam when she was just a little girl to keep the affair a secret. He said in his confession this was a horrible mistake and that it haunted him. He said that Patricia generously offered to sell her apartment so he would not lose his house. Though, again, it's insane to believe that Patricia would sell her house, move in with her lover and his wife, and not expect something in return. In my opinion, she must have known that Carol wasn't going to be around long. But Russell said at the time Patricia's moving in was what he called a quick fix. And even though he said he was so haunted by what he'd done to his daughter, he seemed to have no problem with letting his mistress babysit Sam. Russell talked a lot about the massive financial stress he'd been under. Detectives say the motive for Carol's murder was the fact that Russell knew he would lose half of his equity in the house. Carol had had enough of the abuse and was going to file for divorce. But Russell said Patricia was the instigator. The confession, which he wrote down and gave to police, read, quote, Her exact words were, I'm going out for a short drive. Either get it done or go back to your wife, end quote. Then he said he killed Carol. Patricia came home shortly after that asked if Carol was dead. He said basically that he wasn't sure, and he relied on Patricia, since she had done work as a nurse in the past, he said, to go up and check Carol's pulse. So once again, Russell is putting a lot of responsibility and blame on Patricia, because he said from that point on, it was Patricia who was in charge. Patricia said they had to move the body. So that's why they wrapped Carol's body in a couple of blankets and then put the body into the garage. Then after that, and this is horrifying... While Carol's body is a few feet away in the garage, Russell and Patricia kicked back and sat in the garden and drank gin and tonics out there. But Russell said he still knew he had a problem. He knew he couldn't leave Carol's body there in the garage. So he said since he had a habit of making little bonfires, he thought that his neighbors probably wouldn't suspect anything if he did that again. So this time he said he made a big fire and burned Carol's body little by little over the course of the next 72 hours. He said that no one seemed to notice and said there hadn't been a bad smell, which, again, Russell seems to be a pathological liar. This seems very hard to believe, that there was no smell for three days. He said that he and Patricia had ripped up Carol's dress and sort of thrown some of her stuff around so that Sam would think they'd had a fight and Carol had left, which she did. Russell said that it was Patricia who wrote the letter and said it was her idea to take the ring off Carol's dead body and put it on that note. Russell also told police in his confession that it was Patricia who impersonated Carol. He said at the visit to the lawyer's office in Bournemouth, Patricia pretended to be Carol so that she could remove Carol's name from the title deeds to Carol's house. That way, they could be transferred to Russell and eventually Russell and Patricia. In his written confession, which was excerpted in Tony Knott's book, Russell wrote, quote, Who impersonated Carol in front of a solicitor wearing a cheap blonde wig with no fear of being caught out by the real Carol turning up, end quote. Once again, Russell is trying to make it clear in his confession that Patricia was in on the whole thing. He said that he killed Carol because he was totally in love with Patricia and wanted to protect her. It's interesting because in this confession, all he ever talked about was his own pain. He kept referring back to Patricia, writing, She promised to stand by me forever. Russell said he was so hurt by Patricia's betrayal, and yet he said nothing about the wedding vows that he made to his wife. The whole thing's so delusional and unbelievable, and in my opinion, it's worth reading, though, because it really is a window into the mind of a narcissistic psychopath. 
So Russell confessed, but somehow managed to throw most of the blame on Patricia, talk about his own suffering, and yet he still refused to reveal the exact location of the body. So he just continued Carol's family's torment. And it was pretty pointless anyway, because later he recanted that confession too. There was a TV series made about the case called The Investigator, a British crime story. Now this turned out to be a very controversial documentary. It aired on ITV and focused on the investigation made by a retired Thames Valley police officer named Mark Williams Thomas. Mark said that he really wanted to find out what had happened to Carol. And according to British media reports, some people who watched the show ended up getting kind of upset because they say the documentary teased the finale that seemed to promise a resolution. But in the end, a lot of the mystery was still unsolved. I think they might have been a little hard on Mark Williams Thomas, Because I know how hard it is to investigate a cold case, and people should remember that even though it seems really frustrating for the audience when they don't get closure, think about how the family feels. And without people continuing to investigate, the family may never get answers. So it's really important, in my opinion, to keep investigating even when you're not sure that you're going to have all the answers. In 2014, Russell came up for parole and it was denied. But then the parole board made a decision to release Russell. According to the BBC News, the Justice Secretary asked the board to reconsider that decision. But in October 2020, the parole board doubled down. They announced that they would be going through with the release. Carol's family strongly opposed this move. They've said they believe that even though Russell was 77 years old at this point, their lives could still be in danger. Over the years, Sam has begged her dad to tell her where Carol's remains are so she can lay her mother to rest and try to get some kind of, again, I won't say closure, but at least some answers. But he's never told her where the body is. So she said that in 2017, she was shocked when she got a letter saying the parole board was even considering a possible release. According to BBC News, they were doing this because Russell was, quote, in poor health and unlikely to be able to cause harm, end quote. And those are the criteria that the parole board bases decisions on. So Carol's family and friends have said they want the law changed so that defendants who refuse to give police information about where a body is buried would have to stay behind bars. According to The Guardian, there's a law going through Parliament called Helen's Law. It's named after a woman named Helen McCourt, whose murderer was released, even though he withheld information about where her body was buried. If the law is passed, it's supposed to require the parole board to factor in the fact that the killer refuses to give that information when the parole board is considering someone for release. So in the end, even though the parole board called Russell's behavior heartless, they said this does not mean that he's a threat to society. The parole board decision read, quote, however, whilst heartless, the panel concluded that this lack of openness and honesty did not significantly affect the risk that he would cause serious harm in the community, which was ultimately the test that must be applied, end quote. According to The Guardian, Russell has been classified as medium risk, which basically means he'll have to wear an electronic tag and follow a curfew, but he'll be free. I guess these people don't listen to Red Collar Podcasts because just because someone appears to be feeble, it does not follow that they won't harm anyone else, especially if they have a history of white-collar or red-collar crime. These criminals normally just don't stop this type of behavior. Carol's grandson told the BBC that, in his opinion, the parole board should be ashamed. He said that the decision would undermine the faith 
that victims have in the system. He said, quote, It is the measure of the man that he still tries to inflict as much psychological trauma as possible. So do I believe he poses a risk to my mother and I? Absolutely. Let's just hope that Russell doesn't prove me right. End quote. Patricia Cosley is still out there, too. She has reportedly been living under another name. When the investigative series was made, the show did contact Patricia. But according to the Mirror newspaper, she refused to talk with them. She released a statement instead. It read, quote, I fell in love with Russell when his marriage was on the rocks, and both he and Carol were seeing other people. I moved in with them to look after Samantha while they both worked in Yorkshire. It may have made some people feel uncomfortable, but it was right for all of us, and meant that Carol had time to work things through. She had told me she wanted to go, which is why I was not very surprised that she left, leaving her wedding ring and a note. Russell was never violent to Carol or me, and it did not cross my mind she was dead. I've never had any information that could assist in locating her and relieving Samantha's understandable distress. My sympathy remains with her over the loss of her mother. End quote. She reiterated that she had nothing to do with Carol's death. She said Russell had made that confession and said she was part of it just for revenge because she'd ended their relationship. She did admit she'd impersonated Carol, and her reasoning seems a little bizarre. She continued, quote, I was foolish enough to use her work permit number in Canada as a matter of convenience, and then to get mixed up in a plan Russell hatched to commit the insurance fraud, which also involved transferring the house share to my name. I have deeply regretted that dishonesty on my part ever since. I believe Russell is highly manipulative and unreliable, and I wish I had not come under his influence. End quote. I don't know about you guys, but to me, that seems a little cold and insincere and in no way reflects the pain that she inflicted on Sam over the years. There have been some new developments in the case. There was the documentary, and in 2020, a witness came forward to say that he believed he saw Russell all those years ago burning something in a rug. He had been biking through an area called New Forest, which is near where Russell and Carol lived at the time. Police have said that the evidence was insufficient for them to move on and excavate the area. In other reports I've seen, they seem to be saying it was too general an area, so it's kind of unclear reading through press reports exactly what happened to that lead. Sam has moved on with her life. After the abuse she endured as a teenager, she grew up, got married, and had a family of her own. But she has said many times that every time her dad gave new details or a supposed confession and then took it back, it was emotional torture for her. She continues to search for answers and to hope that one day she will find out the whole truth about what happened to her mother. A forensic team has dug up the garden where Russell said he burned the body. Many searches have been conducted in the area, but to this day, Carol's body has never been found. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. 
And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Napa.